beloved uh, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we look at the last part of Psalm 95, the last section starting in verse 7, in the middle of the verse, verse 7c, starting with the words, today if you will hear his voice, continuing on through verse 11, in which the psalmist illustrates that the law drives sinners. The psalmist illustrates that the law drives sinners. My friends, the preaching of the law is important. As I said last week when we started this series, it's not necessarily the most popular thing to preach on. But it's important. The law itself is prominent, and it is throughout the Bible. The law permeates all of Scripture. And as I mentioned last week, there are at least three uses to the law. It is of use to demonstrate, so I'm going to use the initials DDT, if you know the old pesticide, DDT. It demonstrates that man is a sinner. It drives the sinner either further into sin or to Christ, and then it teaches the believer how to live. So the law has at least these three functions, if you will. Last week we considered how the Bible is very clear, abundantly clear, that it teaches that man is a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But now that leads us to the second part. And that is, so what do we do with that? As we confront the law, or better yet, as the law confronts us, as the law confronts us, what do we do with that? Well, what we see here is that the law drives sinners. Now, the first point, then, we want to look at today is the awakening, the awakening In other words, we are to have our consciences awakened to flee from the wrath to come. That's what the psalmist is saying here. Notice the word today. It doesn't say tomorrow. It says today. Today. Now, to be sure, there is an historical reason for saying today, to be sure, The Jews had a day in which to respond to grace. And today is especially the day of redemption and the day when we must respond. So we don't want to forget the historical emphasis of using the word today in terms of looking at eras, looking at ages, if you will. But at the same time, we must not forget that the word today gets our attention And it implies a priority, an urgency. Don't delay. For the longer you yield to sin, the more hardened you become. Hebrews chapter 3, which by the way quotes from Psalm 95. So you find in in Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4, you find this psalm being quoted from. and And the writer says... Chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse 13, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, 
lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And so there's a priority. Uh, what did Jesus say to the rich fool? You remember the rich fool? Where he says, I'm going to, oh, look at all these things, these great things I have, all these goods. Where am I going to put them all? I'll tell you what, I'm going to build a bigger barn for all these riches that I have. And God says, you fool, this night your soul shall be required of you. Then whose shall these be? Today. Don't delay. Today is the day. That rich fool's time was up. My friends, I say to you, I say to me, I say to all of us, are we hearing the word of Christ today for the last time? We do not know what tomorrow may bring. So the word then implies a priority. It implies an urgency. Today is the day of salvation. Life flies like an arrow. As James says, don't say we will do this or that. Say if the Lord wills, because we don't know what the day may bring. And as we had our scripture memory today from Hebrews 9, verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die. And then there's no probation after that, the judgment. Today. But he goes on to say, not only today, if you would hear his voice. And so we talk now about the voice of God. God speaks. God speaks. As the uh, uh, philosopher Francis Schaeffer put it uh, some years ago, he, uh, say God, he is there and he is not silent. He has made, he wrote a book, Genesis in Space and Time. So he is there, he's made this world, but also he is not silent. He hasn't left us to just imagine what he wants from us. He has spoken. He has spoken. You remember in Exodus chapter 19, just before the giving of the Ten Commandments, there you have a very graphic example of God speaking in terms of the thundering and the lightnings. But then he also spoke, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then the, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and so forth. God speaks. But of course, to hear it means what? To obey. To obey. Now children, <clears throat> if you don't obey, your mom or your dad is going to say, you didn't, you weren't listening to me. And you might even be able to repeat what your mom or dad said. But what does your mom or dad mean? It means you weren't listening with a view towards doing, with a view towards obedience. And so if you really want to hear the authority, in this case God, you need to obey. Hearing means coming into contact with it. It means tuning it in. It means submitting to the will of God. 
Now let us be clear. We hear only by the grace of God. It is only if the Holy Spirit in his grace opens up our eyes and changes our wills and gives us the heart to believe. And so we hear only by God's grace, but hear we must. God speaks in scripture. He speaks in his entire word. And by extension, therefore, he certainly speaks in his law. So what then is the nature of God's law by which he speaks? My friends, it is authoritative. It is detailed. It is binding. It is also, let us be clear, a token of God's grace and love. God is love. God is love. It's one of the God is passages. God is life. God is light. God is love. He is. And his law itself gives evidence of that. Why do parents tell children, no, don't touch that stove, don't do this, don't do that. Oh, daddy, oh, mommy, you're always telling me not what not to do. Why? Because the parent loves the child and doesn't want the child to get hurt. And so God the Father gives us his laws so we don't get hurt. And it's, it's out of love, if you will, that his law is given. As a matter of fact, you remember Jesus' summary in terms of law. Not only is it a manifestation of God's love, but it's also to be an expression of our love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And so there's that aspect of love and law. But also, again, in terms of God's love, the law warns, just like signs warning against hazards. Therefore, God says, if you would hear my voice, it's out of my love for you. Now, that's the awakening. That's the call here. It's, it's, it's sharp. It's... Uh, it gets our attention, does it not? It brings us up short. It's bracing, if you will. Today, if you would hear his voice. But now we come to the response by man. Having seen the call, the awakening, now we have the response. What is the response? <clears throat> well, negatively, one response is continuing in the estate and way of sin. And here, notice, he says very clearly, do not harden your hearts. The hardening of the heart. The hardening of the heart. Uh, John Owen, a great uh, theologian from several hundred years ago, talked about this as being a voluntary perverseness. A voluntary. We know what we are doing. And it's of our own will. And we will not hear Hardening of the heart means dullness in considering the ways of God. It means forgetting what was observed. It means giving ourselves over to sensuality, to the pleasures of this life, to materialism and not to Jesus Christ. It also implies, as you say here, harden 
it implies a callousness. Or to use a different figure of speech, having a seared conscience. You know what it's like to sear something, to burn it. And so the conscience can be burned, as it were, past feeling. It can be that by which love for Christ waxes cold. And this hardening, my friends, is the inevitable result of coming into contact with God's word and rejecting it. And the more man hears and rejects, the harder his heart gets. Just prior to what we read today in terms of the children of Israel, you had another example with regard to Pharaoh, actually numerous examples. And I just, I'll call your attention to these verses because it is kind of striking. If you look at Exodus 7, verse 13, after Moses had said, let my people go, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. Chapter 8, verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them, as the Lord had said. Verse 19, and the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. Verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. Chapter 9, verse 7. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. Verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Verses 34 and 35. So the heart, uh, verse 34. When Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more. And he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. Chapter 10, verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. Verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. So you see... The Lord eventually hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it was not doing anything, in a sense, other than what Pharaoh himself wanted. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. We find the same thing in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, where, where Paul goes over all the, these horrible manifestations of sin, all types of sexual perversion, all types of rebellion, and so forth. And yet we see then in verse 24, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. God gave them up. My father, who was a preacher, was always impressed by that, by that phrase. God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. In other words, man had hardened his heart and eventually God gave him up. So subjectively then, internally, 
there was the hardening of the heart. But notice also objectively, verse 9, the testing of God. When your fathers tested me, some translations tempted me, but the, but the here means tested me, put me to the test. They tried me, though they saw my work. My friends, it is a great sin to tempt or to test God. It is not good to try God's patience. We read in Genesis 6, before the flood, God will not always strive with man. And here, the children, his own people, the children of Israel, tested him. I pause here just a second and remind you to beware of following the crowd in rejecting God. Beware of following the crowd in rejecting God. What is popular is often wrong. Vox populi, voice of the people, that is often wrong. Probably nine times out of ten at least is wrong. Have courage to stand up for what is right and tell the truth. There's also, by the way, a great danger of children following in the sins of their fathers, like father, like son, many times, like mother, like daughter, many times, is it not? This is the danger of that. Even though God's grace is able to break through, but nevertheless, here, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. And so there is this testing of God, objectively, outside of ourselves. But now there's a positive side to that, and that is there's a po- there is the, the opportunity for the opposite of that. Positively, instead of being driven further into your sin, that's one response. Positively, that word, that law can be used to drive you to the solution, to drive you to Christ. The command, do not harden, implies a choice. It implies a decision. It implies that you can choose not by the grace of God, to be sure, but you can choose not to harden your heart, but rather to follow God. The law of God presents a choice before people. And if the conscience truly has been awakened by, the, by regeneration, by being born again, as Jesus said, the person will be driven to seek refuge in Christ. We have a hint of this, by the way, here in Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Who is that rock? It is Jesus Christ. That is the rock who is with the people of Israel in the wilderness. And so the psalmist is calling us to come, therefore, before his presence with thanksgiving and shout joyfully to him with psalms. Now, how then does this occur? How does this occur? Well, the law, we are told, in Galatians 3.24, was our schoolmaster. The word in the Greek is uh, pedagogos, pedagogos, excuse me, pedagogos. Now, you may have heard the word pedagogy with regard to training, with regard to teaching, pedagogy. 
so if you're a professor, you need to have good pedagogy or a teacher and so forth. Well, the, the law was itself our schoolmaster. Our schoolmaster. What's interesting is that the pedagogue initially was a servant or a slave who conducted the boys to and from school. He was an escort. He was an attendant. Oh, and you got out of line, taught to the tune of a hickory stick. The Board of Education, right? He was a disciplinarian as well. So the question then is, and I hope you're asking this question right now, how does the law bring us to Christ? First of all, as we mentioned last week, by making us realize how bad we are, we have no hope. We, we look, we, the law enables us to look at ourselves as it were in a mirror, and we hold up that mirror, that law of God, and reflects back to us exactly who and what we are. We are sinners. We are corrupt. It makes us realize how bad we are. It impresses on us our miserable condition. We, our conscience then begins to work on us as it be, starts to be enlightened. It enables us to recognize that we need a Savior. And more than that, it presents to us the perfection of another, which is Jesus. And that's, that's the positive response. It's implied here, not set forth, but it, it's the implication, is it not? The law either drives us further into our sin or drives us to Christ. And what is the result then? What is the result if, it is an, if it's the negative side? What is the result? We see it here at the end of Psalm 95. It is to leave these people inexcusable and under the curse. They were inexcusable. Why? Because, as we read here, uh, as we read here, they saw my work. Verse 9. They saw my work. The people of God the Israelites knew that this was the very work of God. These were the works of God that God had done. They saw his power in dividing the Red Sea to allow the children of Israel to walk over. They saw God's majesty and terror, his dreadful appearance at the giving of the law, Exodus 19. They saw his severity against sin. The Egyptians drowned in the Red Sea. The opening of the earth in another judgment. They knew the privilege that they had. The very giving of the law as a blessing to them. The oracles of God. The fact that they were made into a church, into a people of God. They knew his care and providence, the continual supply in the wilderness of water, bread, clothes. They saw with their eyes the direction and protection as in the cloud and the pillar of fire. And notice, though, the aggravation of this sin. They knew this all for 40 long years. For 40 years, I was grieved 
with that generation. And so the psalmist goes on, or God goes on, quoting here, I said, it is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Here we hear God's pronouncement, which shows its certainty. They erred in their innermost being, their heart. They wandered astray. They go astray in their hearts. And notice the end of verse 10, and they have not known God's ways. It could very well refer to his works. Certainly it refers to the word and the law of God. Oh, but it gets worse. Not only are they inexcusable, but they are cursed. Look at verse, verse 11. Or verse 10, first of all. I was grieved with that generation. I was grieved with that generation. This is, to use a fancy term, this is what we call anthropopathism. Pathos, emotion, human emotion, anthropos, human emotion attributed to God in order for us to understand, at least in part, the reality here. And so God is saying, I was grieved with that generation. But more than that, he says, verse 11, unto whom I swore in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. This was an irrevocable sentence. His threats, like his promises, are sure. And notice something also interesting. It says, they shall not enter into my rest. We long for the rest. You know, we come to the end of our lives. We, well, at least we have a rest. At least we have a Sabbath, right? At least we have a rest. We lay down in peace. But what if not? What if not? Well, then we not only do not enter into his rest, but we enter into his wrath. Now, notice the examples that are given here in our text. Meribah and Massah. Now, they're not, those, those are the words that are actually used here. Meribah and Massah. Meribah means quarreling. Means quarreling. And so, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So as in the time, that is to say, in the rebellion, that where, the, uh, where the quarrel was, the fight, the argument. And then, as in the day of trial, the word there in the Hebrew is masa, which means testing. So we had one of these incidents already read for us today, Exodus 17. You also find a similar thing in Numbers chapter 20. Both incidents, by the way, had to do with the provision of water. And they were grumbling. They didn't believe God in terms that he could really provide them with water. We're thirsty. And they, they tried it. With, they quarreled with Moses. Both involved unbelief and thus ultimately murmuring against God. But what is also interesting, as we've also noticed, so it wasn't just the promise of God, it wasn't just the word of God, it was also in the context of the law of God. Exodus 12, Exodus 16, Exodus 17, dealt with God giving commands to the people, a couple chapters later, of course, giving the Ten Commandments. Numbers chapter 15 involved commands, 
just prior to the rebellion by Korah and the people. And both of these incidents, therefore, emphasize that the law is given by the God who acts. That's really the point. And so there is very definitely a connection with the law. The God who acts. The God who acts in providing water and other needs. The God who acts in judging. And we find this as we look at it. So those are examples in Psalm 95. But we find, remember the words of Jesus in the New Testament, Luke chapter 18. Remember the, the two effects of the law there in, in Luke 18. Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, goody two-shoe. One who was self-righteous, and the other a tax collector, a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man, the tax collector, the one who was despised, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, there were two effects to the law. The, the Pharisee took it in such a way, God, I... Thank thee, I'm not like other people. Not realizing that he was confirming himself in his pride. He was hardening his heart. Whereas the other man was affected by his sin, by a realization of it, and it led to godly sorrow, which led by God's grace to Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that our preaching a preaching of the word has two effects. It's a savor of life and life to those that are saved. But it's a savor of death unto death to those who are perishing. How many times has my ministry been, sadly, a savor of death unto death? How many times have I seen that? How many times? Preaching has two effects. The law has two effects. And Hebrews 4, verse 12, in the context of dealing with Psalm 95, as we had our scripture memory today, for the word of God is quick or alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So, by way of summary and in conclusion, very briefly, God's law, being part of God's word, either drives us to Christ or drives us away. What effect has the law of God had in your life? Has it demonstrated to you your sin? Has it driven you further into sin? 
or to Christ. I'm reminded of a poem by John Newton, the same man who wrote Amazing Grace. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us in his blood. He presents our souls to God. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would take this word, would apply it graciously, generously, overwhelmingly, overflowingly to the heart of each one here. Oh, may it be that all of us will be able to say on the day of judgment, not we are so great, but we have a Savior who paid the penalty for our sin. May that be the case, oh God, we pray in Jesus' name.